Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? You guys ready for Easter? Hard to believe it's, it's going to be Easter already. It's going to be a fun weekend. Uh, and uh, if you can, I'd, I'd encourage you to try the early service. You notice it's at 8.15, and that's because God doesn't get up before then. So I'm just, uh, that's in the Old Testament somewhere. I can't remember the reference right now, but um, it's going to be a fun weekend, so I'm excited about it. I hope you, you are as well. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me this morning to the New Testament, to Acts chapter 2. If uh, you don't have a Bible, you should find one that you can use down in one of the chair racks around you. Acts chapter 2, uh, in case you don't know, we're in a series right now called Going Viral, uh, and it's a study of um, this first century document that basically records how the early Christian church and the good news of God's love and grace in Jesus went, as we would say today, went viral, spreading very, very quickly from the streets of Jerusalem to the farthest reaches of the known world. Uh, in fact, when we left off last time, all of Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, about 120 men and women, after being filled and empowered by God's Spirit, were told, went out into the streets of the city uh, declaring the wonders of God. In other words, declaring the wonders of Jesus, the wonders of incarnation, the wonders of miracles, the wonders of his resurrection, the forgiveness of sin, the wonders of God's grace. And uh, having gained a a rather large crowd of listeners around him were told that Peter stands up and with amazing boldness explains how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament predictions of the coming Messiah. Uh, and yet Peter says to the crowd, yet you guys put him to death on the cross. He says, but it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God raised Jesus to life. He is both Lord and Messiah, God and Savior. And so the apostle calls people to faith. He says to them, repent and believe in the name of Jesus and as a result, we're told that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. You talk about church growth, uh, going from 120 to 3,000 in a day, that's, that's pretty explosive stuff. And so what happens next with all these, all these new Jesus followers? Well, Luke reports here in chapter 2, verse 42, that from that point on, all of these believers, they devoted themselves, he says, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread into prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So before we talk a little bit more about this, let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, first and foremost, we want to acknowledge you this morning, that you, are, that you are good, that you are great, that you are the creator of all things that we see and know and experience. And you have created us in your image. And you have created us to worship you and to love one another. And so I pray that in our time uh, together right now, God, that... Um, you would remove any distractions that would keep us from hearing what you have to say to us and from hearing the truth of it. I pray your spirit would give us the power to respond and the courage to do so. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as uh, we continue our study of um, uh, chapter 2 of the book, and really as we move on through the rest of the book, what we're going to see is the church grow at a very rapid clip and have this ever-increasing influence on the culture in which she existed. And uh, obviously a big part of that was due to the public declaration of the good news of Jesus, right? 
But um, it's important we realize it wasn't only the words of the apostles and the followers of Jesus that, that had a spiritual impact on people. people or to put it another way, uh, it wasn't just their declaration that made the difference, but also their, their devotion. Uh, and I think that that's what Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to see in this section of the text. I mean, there's clearly a, a link between what happens in verse 41 and what happens in verse 42. Uh, once all of these men and women from, from various nationalities and, and different walks of life, once they personally accept the message of Jesus and, and experience the grace of God and publicly acknowledge their belief by being baptized, which was a, a symbol of faith, something changes. There is a profound and undeniable shift that occurs in the way that these people see and experience life. And that shift is revealed in the opening phrase in verse 42, where Luke writes, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And the Greek term for devoted here is a very strong one. It means to intently engage with and adhere to something. And then the plural pronoun they indicates it was a togetherness type deal. And so here's my, <clears throat> here's my personal Reiki translation. This newly formed community of Jesus followers totally committed themselves and adhered to a new and devoted way of life, which caught the attention of the surrounding culture. But what were these first Christians devoted to exactly? I mean, clearly we know from verse 41 that they, they were devoted to Jesus, but that devotion was expressed in a number of other different ways. For example, <clears throat> according to Luke, for those early believers, devotion to Jesus meant that they were devoted to uh, teaching and learning. Notice the text says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is essentially uh, now our New Testament. But the point here is that this newly formed community of faith, the church, was founded on the truth of God. And based on the fact that the majority of, of these, these men and women were, were brand new believers, some 3,000 of them in total, I think it could be argued that in many respects, the early church was more of a, a learning church than a, than a teaching church. And the burden of that rested not primarily on the apostles to instruct, but on the Christians to learn. You know what I'm saying? I mean, most of us realize that you know, through our own personal experiences, that sometimes teachers, well, sometimes teachers are boring and disorganized and inarticulate, and yet students still learn despite the, the instructor's shortcomings. At other times, teachers are brilliant, scintillating, bald, captivating uh, communicators, <clears throat> right? And yet, uh, and yet sometimes, even in that case, students may learn nothing. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that, that the key to learning is less about the teacher and more about the students' hunger for truth. And um, these early Christians, man, they were hungry. They were hungry for more of the truth, truth about Jesus, truth about God's love for them, truth about who God is and what he is like and what he says is right and good and healthy and best for us as human beings. They were hungry for this. And so whether in a, in a big giant group or in a small group, these early believers, they listened to the apostles, they studied the scriptures, they, they talked about them together, they applied them to their lives. They were devoted not just to teaching, but to learning. They were also devoted to authentic community, or as the text puts it, to fellowship. Now, those of you who know me know that I, I rarely use this word in public because uh, for me it's just become so incredibly diluted that it means very little anymore. Uh, if you've been running around Christian circles for any length of time, then uh, you've heard the word fellowship used to describe any sort of Christian get-together. We had fellowship. We had fellowship over there. We had fellowship doing this, fellowship doing that, fellowship here, there, and everywhere, right? And I'm sorry to be a bit cynical about it and dismissive of it, but 
Just for me, the word has taken on a, a, a schmarmy, superficial, potluck, bean supper nuance that, that uh, <laughs> just misses the true essence of the Greek term it translates. The term is koinonia, and it referred to deep connection, deep community, commitment, shared purpose in life. Now understand, in the first century, this was not a superficial social term. And so, for example, when the Apostle Paul writes to Christians in the city of Galatia, he talks about how James and Peter and John, how they, when they met, he says, those guys gave, he says, those guys gave me the right hand of fellowship. When he uses that term, he wasn't talking in cliches. He wasn't, he wasn't describing some kind of insignificant handshake among acquaintances over macaroni and cheese. I mean, he was, he was talking about um, the serious connection they had with trust and agreement and dedication and partnership and relationship together in life and in mission. Fellowship. In the truest biblical sense, it is about deep commitment to one another, and it, and it implies a level of love and trust and loyalty and grace and authenticity that we don't see much of anymore in our, in our, in our culture, in our society. I mean, the opinion of our culture is that the way you make it in life is to hide your flaws and never, ever let anyone see or know your weaknesses. And we're supposed to present ourselves as always in control, as if we've got it all together. And we're to look out for number one. You know, forget loyalty. Take care of yourself. You know, that's the way, that's the way of our world. And sadly, it's become the way of many congregations and many Christians. And yet that kind of protective, uh, consumeristic, disingenuous, disloyal approach to life and... Uh, I mean, it just doesn't, it doesn't lead to true fellowship, not to true, authentic biblical community. It just doesn't. In biblical community, you know, true community is something, you know, we just, we have to work on, we have to work at, we have to work toward. And that's what, that's what these early Christians did, man. When they were together, they helped carry each other's burdens. They were, they were, they openly expressed their fears, their, their, their hurts, their failures. They honestly admitted their weaknesses and, and confessed their sins and shortcomings, and they encouraged one another and forgave one another, and yet they also admonished one another and challenged one another, and they held each other accountable, and they did all of it out of love, out of love for one another, out of loyalty for one another. How is that possible? It's possible because when you understand the gospel of Christ, when you understand the gospel of grace, then you can admit that you're not perfect and don't get it right all the time. No one is, no one does. And in humility, you can, you can concede your flaws and your weaknesses, and you can embrace forgiveness and experience grace and extend the same to others. And I tell, you, I tell you what, when that starts to happen, when we start doing that, it frees all of us up to be our true selves. It opens our, uh, us up to true community. No more hiding, no more pretending, no more self-absorption. And that, that, my friends, is true fellowship. And these early believers were devoted to it. What else? Well, they were devoted to reflection and prayer, or as the text describes it, to the breaking of bread into prayer. And notice the definite article that's used here. Luke doesn't say they were devoted to breaking of bread, but to the breaking of bread. You say, why is that important? It's important because he's describing the specific practice of sharing communion, which was part of 
the corporate spiritual life of the church. I mean, that's what he has in, in view here. Because when Luke writes a couple verses later that they broke bread in their homes and ate together, he's talking more about hospitality. He's talking about how these Christians hung out together, socialized, you know, enjoyed being with one another. You know, they got together uh, informally, had a meal, drank some wine, joked, laughed, told stories, deepened their relationships. But when he refers to the breaking of bread into prayer, he's talking about the more formal time of spiritual reflection on the sacrifice of Jesus and the giving of thanks to God for his grace and his rescue. What else? Notice verse 44, Luke says these Christians were devoted to to some ridiculous generosity. He says all the believers were together and they had everything in common. I want to stop for a second here. I want to point something out to you because Luke says all the believers were together, right? All of them. And as we already learned earlier in the chapter, we're talking about, we're talking about men and women from, from all different cultures speaking a number of different languages. All kinds of different people, Asian, Jew, Greek, Roman, African, Arab, suddenly all together in belief, all together sharing everything in common. And we say, well, isn't that nice? What's the big deal with that, though? Well, it was a huge deal. It was a huge, unprecedented deal. A respected Yale professor, Kenneth Latterett, in his classic book, A History of Christianity, he writes about this. And he explains how Christianity's um, success is, is, is really found in its absolute inclusiveness. It was unique. You know, in other words, one of the reasons Christianity went viral was because the message of God's grace is universal. It goes to everyone. Latteret goes on in the book to talk about how even the days of its most active uh, proselytizing, Judaism never overcame its racial boundaries because its converts had to become culturally Jewish. So Christianity, Christianity was different. Christianity gloried in its appeal to Jew and Gentile, African. Arab, barbarian. Ancient Greco-Roman philosophers appealed only to the educated. They could never win the masses. One of the charges they levied against Christianity that it it drew the lowly and the uneducated with its teaching, you know, so simple anybody could understand it. And yet Christianity converted some of the greatest and brightest minds in society. Christianity was for both sexes, male and female. Women were very, very active in the life and ministry of the church, while two of its main competitor religions were exclusively for men. And then finally, the mystery religions, the pagan religions of the day, were mainly for the rich. You know, mainly for the rich. They had had high initiation fees that most people couldn't afford. So you see, there there really was no other religion that took in all groups, all strata of society, and Latteret writes in his book that more than any other of its competitor religions, Christianity attracted all races and nations. All, all, all people. And so Luke says, all of these people, all these diverse believers from all these different cultures, they were together and, and, and they had everything in common. You know, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Ridiculous generosity. Ridiculous In other words, people's money and possessions suddenly stopped being viewed as mine and became viewed as ours. And believers would make some incredible personal financial sacrifices in an effort to love and help others. 
And what's really fascinating about this, at least to me, is this is not something Jesus necessarily commanded, right? I mean, sure, Jesus called his followers to generous giving. In fact, he went so far to say that the way you give your money reveals the condition of your heart. But he never said, hey, man, sell the condo, the fishing boat, the golf clubs, and, 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 and offer the proceeds to the church. Jesus never said that. And there's no indication the apostles ever taught that. So why was it happening? As best as I could tell, it seems it was a, a spontaneous response to the goodness and grace of God and to the prompting of his spirit to love and sacrifice for others and to recognize the stuff of this life doesn't really matter in the scope of eternity. So I don't need to hoard it for myself. I can't take it with me. I can share it with everyone else. And that's what these believers did with reckless abandon. In fact, it was this unparalleled level of unselfishness of the early Christians, not only toward each other but toward outsiders that caught the attention of the culture. Because that, this kind of generosity, you see, was not normal. It had never been seen before. It was alien to Greco-Roman society, and yet it permeated the way the early church just lived every day. <clears throat> An ancient Greek author at the time, his name was Lucian of Samosata, very well-known, prolific writer, um, and an opponent of Christianity. And one of the things that really bugged him about, about this whole movement, this whole Christian thing, and the fact that it bugged others, mostly those who were rich and in powerful positions, what really bugged these people, and specifically, specifically Lucian, was this ridiculous level of generosity. And he writes this. He says, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rights and was crucified on that account. These misguided creatures start with the conviction that they are immortal, which explains their contempt of death and voluntary devotion, which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they're converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Here's my Reiki summary. Lucian of Samosata is saying, these followers of Jesus, these Christians are crazy. They're crazy. Crazy generous. I don't like it, and I don't get it. Now you may say, well, why are you quoting an ancient Greek author who, who uh, had issues with Christianity? I'm quoting him because it, it, it makes the point that Luke's account here of the church is not a fable. This is not some fairy tale. It's historic fact attested to by both biblical and secular sources, all of which record that instead of living greedy, selfishly indulgent, unloving, callous lives, Christians were exceedingly compassionate and in the eyes of their culture, ridiculously generous. They were devoted to following Jesus' example of sacrifice, devoted to giving of themselves and of their stuff away to God, away to their neighbors for the good of those in need and for the good of the gospel itself. They were also devoted to worship and praise. Luke says, Luke says, every day they continued to meet in the temple, every day praising God together. They praise him for his love, his truth, his sacrifice, his grace, his beauty, his magnificence. And worship happened while they were learning, while they were praying, while they're sharing a meal, when they're at home, when they're in the temple. In some respects, I guess you could say corporate worship and praise was the engine that inspired them forward. 
they couldn't help but do it, to praise God. Why? Well, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis uh, writes about why. He writes about this thing called aesthetics. It's a branch of philosophy dealing with the nature of beauty and art and taste and, and with the creation and, and appreciation of beauty. And Lewis says, you know, he says, I think what we delight to praise, he says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise does not merely express but completes the enjoyment. It's the appointed consummation. It's not simply to compliment that lovers keep telling each other how beautiful they are. The delight itself is incomplete until it is expressed. Now, what Lewis says sounds quite profound, and it is, while at the same time, it's quite simple. It's, and it's something that we all know to be true. Think about it. When you, when you find music that, that you really like, that's beautiful to you, that you love, you want to take your MP3 to your friend, push an earbud at him, and say, you got to listen to this. If you read a book that is moving and inspiring, you want to take the book, you give it to your friend, say, you got to read this. you got to read it. If you see a piece of art that's, art that's striking, you want to show it to someone. When you glance up at the evening sky and see a beautiful sunset, you want to run and get someone and say, look at it, look, look, look. You want to share it. In fact, I want to share something I saw the other night at the United Center that was absolutely beautiful. It was Taj Gibson's dunk over Toronto's Patrick Patterson. It was a thing of magnificent. I was, I was up standing and screaming, look at that, look at that. You know, I wanted everybody to acknowledge the magnificence of it all. Beauty, as they say, is in the eye of the beholder, right? <laughs> but here's the point. You know it and I know it. You know, when we experience something beautiful, whatever it might be, we want to share it. We want to talk about it. And that's what Lewis was getting at. He was saying there's something about the beautiful thing itself that makes us react the way they, that we do. A beautiful object demands praise, and the joy we experience from it has to get out. Uh, you know, it's like we'll explode if we don't say anything. In fact, our joy isn't complete until it expresses itself. And when another person says, you're right, you know what, it is beautiful, it makes, all the more, makes it all the more joyful. See, we don't simply express our joy, we complete our joy when we praise the object of beauty. And if you don't get that, um, then you probably aren't going to understand the things Christians do when we get together. Because it's like, it's like we have to get together because the more beautiful, the more magnificent the object, the more joy we have in it, and the praise of it has, has to get out, and we want to share it. We want to share in that praise with others who recognize the same beauty. And so when we're together, it's like we're saying to each other, look at the beauty, look at the goodness, look at the love, look at the grace, look at the magnificence of God, our creator. And honestly, if, if you don't share that, that intense need to express yourself about him, you know, I wonder how great and beautiful you really think he is. I and mean, why do you guys think I stand up here week after week after week? I'm, I'm here because... Because I see the beauty and I see the truth of God and the grace of God in Jesus. And I've experienced that. And I'm just trying to find new ways of saying, man, oh man, you've got to see this and experience it too. And that's what the early church was doing. You know, with a great sense of awe, they continually praised and worshiped the God who loved them, the one who was gracious and who, way, who by way of divine sacrifice paid the penalty for their sin. They praised the one who gives us purpose, hope, forgiveness, life everlasting. See, when you really know him and you recognize his beauty and goodness, you can't help but worship him. You can't help but do it. And you want to be with others who see and do the same. I've mentioned this before, but every now and then someone will say to me, man, we need to get back to being like the early church. 
And whenever I hear it, the question in my head is, are you sure you really want a piece of that? Right? Because, because the earliest believers, man, they were devoted people. They were devoted, devoted to learning, devoted to authentic community, devoted to reflection and prayer, to, to ridiculous generosity, and to worship and praise. Are we devoted to those things? Are you? And make no mistake, when we are, when all those things happen, when we're together, wonderful stuff happens. Other things happen. I mean, look at, look at the results here. Luke says, <clears throat> Christians were enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, Jesus' followers were respected and valued by unbelievers around them. The spiritual change that transformed their lives from the inside out began to change their friends, their family, their neighborhood, their world. And so every day, we're told the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. More and more men, women, students were placing their faith in Jesus and joining in this new, this new community. Why? Because they saw something different about these Christians. They saw something different. Now, I'm not so naive to think they were perfect, but there's no denying it. There was something about their declaration of grace and their devotion that was irrefutable and irresistible. I mean, it wasn't that the church had fancy facilities or some kind of canned recipe for increasing weekend attendance. No, no, no. It was because of who these people were, what they did together, and how they lived every day. They devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. And again, where did that begin? It began by them accepting Jesus and the message and good news of God's love and grace and forgiveness. That's where it started. And when they did that, when they embraced it, when they, when they decided to be a follower of Jesus, they devoted themselves to Jesus. The first act of faith for them was what's called believer's baptism, which, which is simply a visual, public, ceremonial expression of personal devotion. Peter said to the crowd of people, he says, repent and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and be baptized, every one of you. So here's my question. How devoted are you? I mean, have you done those things as, as an individual? Have you put your personal faith and belief in Jesus and embraced the truth of God's love and grace and forgiveness that comes through him? If not, perhaps, perhaps it's time for you to make that decision because understand, I can't make that for you. You can't make it for your kids. You can't make it for your neighbor. That's a decision that you have to make on your own between you and God. You don't become a Christian by osmosis. Uh, Christianity isn't like a, it's not like a virus that you catch by hanging out with other Christians. You don't catch it by proximity. You have to make a decision. In fact, we've put decision cards in the chair backs in front of you this morning because here's what I want you to do. If you've never made that personal, that personal decision to put your faith in Jesus, maybe religion has been part of your background, but a relationship with God has not because you haven't decided to believe and follow Jesus, I want you to take the card out this morning. I want you to mark it where it says, today I've decided to put my faith in Jesus and sign your name because I want to know. It's like a stake is in the ground now. I've made the decision. Maybe you've made that decision in the past, but um, both you and God know your devotion is really not where it should be. And if that's the case for you, then I want you to take the card out and I want you to mark it where it says, I am redevoting or I'm rededicating my life to Jesus. And sign your name because I want to know. It requires decision. 
It requires a decision. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And as we do, you can take out the card in the, in, the, in the pocket around you. Mark your decision. At the end of the service, as you're going out, just drop it off to one of the ushers on the way out. Because keep in mind, when it came to the early church and how the church changed, do you understand the significance of this? The church changed the world. Why and how? Scripture says because they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Have you? Let's pray. Father, I... um, I think of the day when Peter challenged people to believe and how all of these men and women from different, from different cultures, from different backgrounds, with different likes and dislikes, how they all rallied around this, this message of grace and how the news of Jesus, Savior and Messiah, who died for the sins of humanity, was raised to life, offers eternal life to those who believe and how Peter called people to decision. And I pray this morning for, for, for all of us in the room that we would, we would be honest about our own lives and our own journey uh, with you or even without you. And it's, we're all from different places with different backgrounds and experiences, but I pray this morning that we would each make a decision if we haven't yet done so. Perhaps today's the first time some of us here will say, I believe, I want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to devote myself to him. I pray you'd give them the courage to make that decision. Others of us who have made that decision a long time ago, I think, Lord, maybe if we're honest, we'd say, man, my devotion to you is really lacking, and I just, I want to recommit myself to you, the God who loves me and gave it all for me. And even this week as we, as we race toward Easter, I just want to, be, I want to be thinking and praying and reflecting on all that you've done for me. If that's true, that we'd mark that card and say, I'm rededicating myself. It's not the action, but it's, it's the decision behind the action. We love you this morning. And we're grateful that in Jesus, this, this idea of, of grace has changed the world, the reality of it has changed the world, it has changed us. It has freed us to be ourselves and to experience true community with you, our God, and with each other. And we're thankful for that. When we offer you our worship and our praise because we just, we just have to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we? I want to thank you all for being with us uh, this morning, and, and I hope you get the message. The message is not a religious one, because religion says you've got to work hard, you've got to be a better person, you've got to do this, that, and the other thing, and that just wears you down, it wears you out, and you give up. But Christianity's message is completely different. It's the message of God's grace offered in Jesus to, uh, to rescue you and give you life, forgive your sins. But it's not forced on you. You have to make a decision. You can't depend on other people. You don't, you don't catch Christianity, you know? you know what I'm saying? You have to make a decision. I hope you have. 
Uh, and if you want to talk to somebody more about it, following the service, you can come down. Some of our prayer folks will be here. You can talk with them. They'll pray with you. Um, but also, you know, as you look at the early church, the first act of, de- uh, of, of dedication, devotion to Jesus, was what we called believer's baptism. It was an ancient rite um, uh, whereby um, upon belief, Jesus said, baptize people uh, as my followers. And upon belief, they would be, they would be publicly, ceremonially uh, washed. That's what the word means. Um, it was a symbol of this washing away of sin and rising to new life, a new clean creature, and associating with a new tribe, a new community called the church. That's what baptism is. It's the first step of devotion. And if you've never gone through it, uh, I, I encourage you to do it today. Following the third service, we're just we're gonna we're gonna baptize a whole bunch of people. Uh, some of you know we were hoping to do it outside. I don't know what we were thinking, but we were hoping to do it outside. That didn't work out. We were gonna do it with a couple big baptismal things. Those didn't work. So um, we're, we obviously God wants us to baptize down in our tank. So we're gonna do that. But it's following this, uh, the third service. If you've never followed Jesus in baptism. Uh, I, I encourage you to do it. Be spontaneous. Get a little crazy. Come back after the service. We got T-shirts for you that say, "This is what grace looks like," and on the back it says, "Hashtag got dunked." So uh, come back um, and, and 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 be baptized if you haven't haven't been before. I think you'll find it an amazing and moving experience. Um, if you uh, if you want to you want to sign up for doing it, you can talk to Susan Shelley. She's on our. She's on our east wall. Just let her know that you're coming. Uh, we have T-shirts for everybody. And for the next crowd, because they're going to have to do it spontaneously, we got T-shirts, we got shorts, we got towels, we got undergarments. I mean, we got it all. It is covered because we don't want, to, we don't want people to not get baptized because they don't, they don't have the gear, right? So uh, anyway, I hope you guys have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you on Good Friday and on Easter. And uh, it, it's going to be a good weekend. So uh, Let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. And now, Father, we offer offer you our lives. Uh, For those of us who have committed ourselves to Jesus, we devote ourselves to him and to you. And, Lord, we want to be the church as it was in those early days that makes a difference in the world. Heaven knows the world needs it. But it requires our devotion to you and our trust in you and our faith in you. It requires that we have an uh, authentic community and, and, and teaching and learning and ridiculous generosity and prayer. and All of these things, Lord, we, we want them in our lives. But mostly we want you. And so now as your church leaves the building, as we go back out into our community, I pray that we go with a great sense of your, your presence and your grace. May we change our world for Jesus. May your hand of peace and rest be upon your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.